Amen. All right, well, we're there in uh, Job chapter number 11. And, of course, we are working our way through the book of Job on Wednesday nights. We're taking one chapter a week. And uh, the book of Job is, has this section that we've been working through and will be working through for a while. And if you remember, the first uh, couple of chapters are uh, the narrative. We get the story of Job. And then at the end, we get God speaking. But between that, we have this conversation between Job and his uh, three friends. And there's actually a fourth guy who enters the conversation later on in the book. But uh, primarily, it's between Job and his three friends. And we uh, have not, we're we're just now kind of making it towards the end of round one. Uh, And what I mean by that is that in in this conversation, you have Job and his three friends. You have Eliphaz, the Temanite, and Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Naamathite, which is the one who speaks in this chapter, they all speak, and Job responds, and another one speaks, and Job responds, and another one speaks, and Job responds, and that's round one. And then they start over, and then the first one speaks again, and Job responds, and the second one again, the Job responds, the third one again, Job responds. That's round two, and then they do it again, a third round. There's three rounds of this, and we are coming towards the end of round one. Zophar has not yet spoken in this book, but he speaks uh, tonight. Zophar the uh, Naamathite. And I want you to notice, uh, I'll give you an outline as we move through here and make application. Uh, unfortunately, there's not much that Zophar brings to the table as far as uh, you know new arguments. He basically just regurgitates the arguments from his previous friends. But I want you to notice uh, what he says. The first thing we notice here, and if you're taking notes, maybe you can write this down. The first thing we see is that Zophar answers. And uh, Zophar answers uh, Job. If you see there in Job chapter 11 and verse 1, the Bible says this, then answers Zophar, the Naamathite, and said. So he speaks for the first time, and notice what he says. When he answers Job, he answers by basically insulting him. And he just starts just right out of the gate with a series of insults uh, to Job. Notice verse 2. Should not the multitude of words be answered? We're going to come back to that phrase in a minute. Notice the second part of verse 2. And should a man full of talk be justified? So notice he begins by saying, Job, you're a windbag. You're just a man full of talk. You know, you're, you're ju- you just talk a lot. And, and he says, you know, should you be justified just because you talk a lot? Then he says this in verse 3, should thy lies make men hold their peace? So he says, you're a windbag. Then he says, you're a liar. He says, Job, you're lying. He said, should thy lies make men hold their peace? And when thou mockest, shall no man make thee ashamed? Then he says this, he says, you're a mocker. He says, when thou mockest, shall no man make thee ashamed. And then, uh, just skip down to verse 12, just real quickly, just to kind of show you all the name calling. Then he says, you're vain. And the word vain means to be empty, means to be devoid of value. He says in verse 12, he says, for vain men would be wise. And, and what he's telling Job is, he's telling Job, you are a vain man, that is not wise. He says, you're empty. He says, you're, you're void of any value. He says, but you could be wise. He says, for vain men would be wise. And then he kind of uses this odd illustration. He says, though man be born like a wild ass's colt. 
And what he's saying there is, he's saying, he's saying, he's saying, though vain men are born like a wild ass, he says, like a wild ass, they can be tamed and they can be trained and they can be enlightened. This is what he's, this is what his friend is saying to Job. You know, keep in mind, a man who just buried his children, you know, in poor health, uh, who's lost everything, has done nothing wrong, and his friends are the, these comforters that are come to comfort him. And this is how so far begins. He doesn't begin with, hey, Job, you know I love you. You know, we've been friends for a long time, you know, but I've got some things. No, he just begins with, you're a windbag, you're a liar, you're a mocker, you're vain, basically calling him a donkey, you know, and um, using all these things. So he answers so far, but he answers by uh, ins- insulting him. But I want you to notice, if you go back to verse 2, that he, he asks these series of questions in regards to the answer. And this is a, this is a spirit we see a lot of in, uh, in people today. I want you to notice it in verse 2, Job 11, verse 2. He says this. He says, should not the multitude of words be answered? And here's what he's saying. He, he doesn't agree with Job. Now, Job is right and Zophar is wrong, all right? But he doesn't agree with Job, and, and he has this attitude, this mindset. He says, should not the multitude of words be answered? And what he's saying is this. He's saying, somebody needs to answer you, Job. He's saying, somebody needs to put you in your place. Then he says in verse 3, he said, should thy lies make men hold their peace? He's saying, just because you're lying, and of course, what he's referring to is where Job is saying, I'm innocent, I haven't done anything worthy of this punishment, you know. And then uh, Zophar says, you know, you're lying. Should thy lies make men hold their peace? And when thou mockest, he says, shall no man make thee ashamed? And, you know, Zophar is asking these questions. And what he's saying is, shouldn't somebody answer you, Job? Shouldn't somebody correct you, Job? Shouldn't somebody, you know, make thee ashamed? Job, somebody needs to put you in your place. Somebody needs to embarrass you. Somebody needs to just show you that you are wrong. And he asks these questions, and I want to kind of help you with this. And if you would, uh, keep your place there in Job. Obviously, that's our text for tonight. But go to the book of Proverbs, if you would. You're there in Job. Right after Job, you have the book of Psalms. And after Psalms, you have the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 27. And let me just say this. If the question is, is it our job to always correct, to always uh, rebuke, to always embarrass somebody, uh, uh, you know, whenever the opportunity arises, you know, the answer is no. When he says, should not the multitude of words be answered? The question is no, the multitude of words don't need to be answered. Now here's the thing, Job is actually right. Job is actually the wise one. But even if Job wasn't right, we must realize that it is not our job to be these, you know, spiritual police who we just feel the need that we have to walk up to everybody and tell them everything they're doing wrong and tell them why we disagree and tell them why, you know, and put them in their place. You know, a lot of Christians have that attitude, but it's not our place to go around just policing everybody and correcting everybody. You know, the Bible says that we come to church and we and, and the preaching of the Word of God, that's supposed to rebuke you, that's supposed to reprove you, that's supposed to exhort you, but you know, it's not your job to just go around and correct it. Because here's what Zophar is saying, Zophar is saying, somebody needs to put you in your place, Job, somebody needs to put you to shame, Job, somebody needs to answer you, Job, but honestly, 
you don't have to answer everybody. Now, let me just say this. Of course, of course, there is a place, there's a time and a place for those of us who love people and, and, and have a relationship with someone, for us to maybe bring them uh, uh, some correction or rebuke, you know, in the spirit of love, uh, when, when they are doing something that's harmful to them, all right? Now, you're there in Proverbs 27. Let me show that to you. Look at verse 5. Proverbs 27 and verse 5, the Bible says this, Open rebuke is better than secret love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. You know, the Bible says that sometimes a friend is going to tell you the truth, and, you know, the Bible says faithful are the wounds of a friend. If a friend tells you something and you say, man, that hurt, but it's true, you know, realize you've got a faithful friend there because, you know, it's much easier to be deceptive. You know that it's much easier instead of just confronting something, being honest, telling the truth, you know, giving your real, it's much easier to just be deceptive, to just, you know, skirt around issues, to not, you know, if you don't really care about people, that's what you do, by the way. When, when it comes to preaching, it'd be much easier for me to just preach sermons that are general and generic and, and aren't offensive at all. But you know, the Bible says that open rebuke is better than secret love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. So there is a time and a place um, when, when you're close to someone, when you love someone, to maybe have to tell them something that they don't uh, want to hear or that they, don't, uh, that they need to hear. This is why Paul would say to the church in Galatia, he says, am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? And sometimes when you tell people the truth, you do become their enemy. But the Bible says that it, it's good. Look, when somebody rebukes you and they love you and they do it in the right spirit, they're a faithful friend. Faithful are the woods of the friend. With that said, though, that doesn't mean that it's your job and my job as independent Baptists to go around just correcting everybody and telling everybody, you know, where they're wrong. You're there in Proverbs 27. Flip back to Proverbs 26. And this is something that we often see among younger Christians and, and immature Christians where they get a lot of knowledge. You know, they come to a church like this where we're just feeding them the Bible in heavy doses and they're watching documentaries and they're watching sermons online and they're listening to this book of the Bible being preached and that book of the Bible being preached and this sermon and that sermon and a lot of topical preaching and they're a lot of topical... Then they think it's their job to just go around telling everybody, you know, you shouldn't be doing this and you shouldn't be doing that. But you know what? It's not your job to go around and just correct everybody. You know, in a close relationship with a close friend... Sometimes, you know, you need to go to a friend and, 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 and tell them something they don't want to hear. But you say, well, how do I know? How do I know when I'm being a faithful friend or when I'm just being a blowhard and just going around and just rebuking uh, people? Well, here's how you know. Number one is if, if it's hard for you to do it, then you're probably doing the right thing because the right thing is always hard to do. You know, the reason it's easy for people to tell people off on social media is because they don't know those people. Do you understand what I just said? The reason it's hard to go to a brother or a sister or a, 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 a faithful friend and say, hey, let me tell you something. You're doing this, but that's not going to end well for you. You know, the reason that's hard is because you actually know that person. You actually love that person. You actually care for that person. Just walking up to somebody at some conference you've never met and saying, yeah, you shouldn't be wearing, you know. I've heard of ladies walking up to, to first-time guests at church and saying, you shouldn't be wearing that skirt. 
It's like, good night. Who made you the cop? Who made you the spiritual boss? Look, if it's a visitor, even if it's not a visitor, it's, what business do you have telling somebody, let them get that from the preaching of God's word. Let them get that through the teaching of God's word, through discipleship class, through sermons and all that. It's not your job to go around correct. And it's always, you know, it's always a lady that just got rid of her pants last week trying to go around telling every other lady who's wearing pants where she's wrong. You know, that's not your place. The Bible says in Proverbs 26 and verse 4, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou also be like unto him. Now here's what's interesting. In Proverbs 26 and verse 4, the Bible says, Answer not a fool according to his folly. Then in Proverbs 26, 5, the Bible says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. In Proverbs 26, 4, it says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou also be like unto him. Now, sometimes people look at these two verses and they say, That's a contradiction in the Bible. And I'm just kind of like, Really? You don't think the, the God, you don't think the, the writer of Proverbs realized that in verse 4, he said, Answer not a fool according to his folly? And then, in verse 5, I mean the very next verse, the very next breath, he says, answer fool according to my... You don't think they did that on purpose? That's not a contradiction where he just forgot what he just said and said the exact opposite thing. Obviously, when those two terms are being put uh, 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 you know, back to back, and then the reasons are different, lest thou also be like unto him, lest he be wise in his own conceit. Here's what the Bible is trying to teach you. There's a time and a place where sometimes you do have to answer a fool according to his folly. And then there's other times when you don't have to answer a fool according to his folly. We need to be wise enough to know when to do which. So how do you know when I should not answer a fool according to his folly? Here's how, here's how when you should not answer a fool according to his folly. When getting in that argument makes you look like a fool too. Lest thou also be like unto him. You say, when, when is? But look, there is a time when you have to answer a fool according to his folly because sometimes fools talk a lot and they spread their stupid thoughts and you have to take them aside and say, no, let me explain to you why you're wrong, where you're wrong, lest he be wise in his own conceit, lest he thinks, oh, well, I've got it all figured out. I watched this YouTube video. I got it all figured out. I know more than everybody in that church. Sometimes you do have to take around, take, take someone aside and say, no, you're an idiot. Here's what you're not thinking about. Here's what you don't know. Here's what you haven't. You know, maybe stop watching the YouTube videos and just open up your Bible and read it. Read the Bible cover to cover, you know, a half a dozen times, and then we'll talk. Sometimes we have to answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. There are other times when we answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou also be like unto him. And you say, well, that's too confusing. Go to Matthew, if you would. Matthew 21. You say, that's too confusing. I don't know which one is which. Well, newsflash, if you are not wise enough to know which one is which, then maybe you shouldn't be answering anybody at all. Ever. Well, I just don't know which one. If you don't know, then don't. 
Because nobody made you the spiritual police. Nobody made you the spiritual cop. And look, even as a pastor, I get up and I teach and I preach God's word, but I don't go around just policing all your social media and looking at all your pictures. Oh, they're not dressed properly in this picture. Let me tell them off. That's not my job. That's between you and God. You go ahead and be backslidden and, and lose rewards in heaven and do all those things. Look, my job is to preach God's word. By the way, that's why I don't go on social. That's why we don't have social media. Because uh, a lot of it is because I just don't want to see all your crap. <laughs> no offense. You know, I just don't. I'm not mature enough. Every, every Sunday morning sermon is going to be the last thing I saw on social media. I'd just rather not know. <laughs> but, um, you know, the point is this. It's not our job. It's not our job to be just policing everybody and looking at everybody. And, you know, you don't have to send me the picture of, uh, here's a picture that someone posted online where a church member is not dressed properly or whatever. You know, I don't need, we don't, it's, look, that's between them and God. Now, if they do something that gets them, is going to get them kicked out of church, then yes, tell us and we'll church discipline. Amen. That's scriptural. But everything else... You know, it's not our job to be police. Now, if somebody's destroying their life, they're destroying their marriage, they're destroying their kids and their relationship, and as a friend, you feel the need to step in, you know, do that, and do that carefully. And of course, my wife and I are always here to try to help you and coach you with those types of situations. But just realize, it's not your job to go around correcting everybody. All right? Nobody made you the spiritual police. I'm the pastor of the church, and nobody made me the spiritual police to go around and just tell everybody. And here's, here's a great lesson uh, for Zophar and for many of us as Christians is that we don't have to answer every question. See, because of social media, we have become a very opinionated people. People, they, they, ha- they have to have an opinion about everything. You know, and, 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 and look, there's nothing wrong with having an opinion about everything, but they also have to express their opinion about everything. Let me tell you what I think. About, well, did anybody ask you? Anybody ask for your advice? You know, one thing that we learn about the Lord Jesus Christ is that he did not feel this overwhelming need to answer every question. In fact, there's lots of times, and see, people, people hear me preach this. I've said this before, like, you know, you don't have to answer every question. And people say, you're a liberal. Don't answer every question. Okay, well, then was Jesus Christ a liberal? Because you see Jesus not answering every question. Matthew 21, let me show it to you. Look at verse 23. Here's an example. Matthew 21, 23. And when he was come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came unto him, and he was teaching and said, By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority? And Jesus answered and said unto them, I also will ask you one thing, and if ye tell me, I and likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, whence was it? From heaven or of men? And what Jesus is doing is he's just kind of turning the tables on them because they're asking him a question that no matter what he answers, they're going to use it against him, his words against him. So he asked them a question with the same idea. He says, the baptism of John, whence was it? From heaven or of men? And they reasoned with themselves, saying, if we shall say from heaven, he will say unto us, why did ye not then believe him? Because they rejected John. So he said, well, if John's was from baptism, if the message was from heaven, then he's going to just throw it in our face that we didn't believe uh, uh, John. Look at verse 26. But if we shall say of men, we fear the people. For all hold John 
a prophet. So the people are all standing there. They all like John. If they start saying, well, no, it wasn't from God. It was of men. Then we're afraid what people are going to think. Verse 27, and they answered Jesus and said, we cannot tell. And he said unto them, neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. Look, Jesus said, hey, then you're not going to answer my question. I want to answer your question. And look, there's a lesson here for us. You don't have to answer every question. You don't have to give every detail. You don't have to, you know, uh, just tell. You know, I've been preaching a lot about things that are not uh, scriptural in American, uh, you know, government and, and, and constitution. But let me tell you something. Pleading the fifth, that actually is biblical. <laughs> you don't have to. Jesus is being taken into the judgment hall and Pilate's asking questions. People are asking questions, just not answering. Because you don't have to answer every question. But see, see here's what you do. Because you're, you know, what, what people that aren't filled with the Spirit and they're afraid and fearful, you know what they do is they lie. You ask them a question they don't want to answer and they lie to you. They just lie to your face. Or they just lie in a way where they're being deceptive. Hey, no Christian ought to be doing those things. Look, answer the question truthfully or don't answer it at all. I mean, I've had people walk up to me and ask me a question and I just tell them, I'm not going to answer that question. I've been on the phone with people, and um, they're asking me questions that I just, I don't think they need to know. I don't feel comfortable telling them, whatever. I tell them, hey, I answer, you know, I'm not going to answer that question. They keep badgering. I just hang up the phone. Now you know. Some of you are like, oh, that's why I thought the connection. No, you just ask a bunch of dumb questions. <laughs> you know, here's the point. You don't lie to people, but you also don't have to answer. Did Jesus lie? He just said, well, I'm not going to answer your question. And look, just get this in your head. You don't have to answer every question. You don't have to get into every argument. You don't have to rebuke every person. You don't have to ruin every birthday party. You don't have to ruin every, you know, you don't have to just give all of your opinions all the time. Now, there's a time and a place. I mean, sometimes people ask me a question in front of other believers to try to, like, make our church or our thoughts look stupid. And, yeah, you have to answer that for the sake of those that are hearing. But sometimes people ask me stupid questions. I just smile and say, God bless you, and walk away. Because if I answer a fool according to their knowledge, I just become like unto them. Because it's a foolish question that doesn't really want an answer. See, these people, they don't really want an answer from Jesus. They're fools. So Jesus says, I'm not going to answer your question. And look, the sooner you get this in your mind and realize this, it'll help your people skills. It'll help your relationships. See, Zophar has this idea like, I, we can't let Job get Somebody has to make him ashamed. But you know what? Sometimes you can just let people be stupid. Sometimes you don't have to answer the question. So we see that Zophar answers Job. Go back to Job chapter uh, 11. Job chapter 11. And look, the point is this. I'm around unsaved people. I'm around worldly people. I'm around worldly Christians all the time that are saying all sorts of dumb things. And, you know, I don't feel the need to just have to... Sometimes people say dumb things... After the church, here, and I don't feel the need to just let me tell you why you're an idiot. You know, it's like sometimes it's like okay, whatever. So we see that Zophar answers Job. Then I want you to notice. Secondly, Zophar also assumes things about Job, and I preached the whole thing about assuming recently, so I don't want to get too much into this, but this is something that they all do, so it just keeps coming up. He makes a bunch of assumptions about Job. Notice in verse 4, he makes the assumption that God sides with Zophar 
and his two friends versus Job. Job chapter 11, verse 4. For thou hast said, my doctrine is pure, and I am clean in thine eyes. And then he says this in verse 5. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips against thee. It's interesting that Zophar says. Zophar says, I wish God would speak and open his lips against you, Job. The interesting thing about that is that at the end of the book, God does speak. And God does not speak against Job. He affirms Job, and he speaks against Eliphaz, and Bildad, and Zophar. So it's interesting that Zophar is saying, I wish God would speak and open his lips against thee. And the truth is, God's going to speak and open his lips against uh, Zophar. But Zophar makes these assumptions that God sides with him and his friends versus Job. And then Zophar makes these assumptions that God does not, uh, that, that, that Job, excuse me, does not know God. That Job's not a good believer. He's not a good Christian. He doesn't have a good walk with God. Look at verse 7. Well, look at verse 6 uh, as to not skip it. And that he would show thee the secrets of wisdom because he's saying that he wishes God would open his mouth. That they are double to that which is Know therefore that God exacteth of thee less than thine iniquity deserveth. And this is, again, Zophar is making some assumptions here. Because up to this point, his friends have been telling Job, what what is happening to you? You did something to deserve this. Zophar, he kind of ups the ante, and he says, not only did you do something to deserve this, he said, you did something so bad, you're, you're getting off easy, Job. God exacteth of thee less than thine iniquity deserveth. Like, you deserve worse than this. You know, if I was Job, I'd be thinking to myself, like, what could be worse than this? I mean, like, what else? You want my dog to die? Like, what else do you want to happen? But so far, it's just God exacteth of thee less. He's making these assumptions that God is against Job, that Job does not know God. Look at verse 7. Canst thou by searching find out God? And what he's saying is, he's saying, you can't even know God, Job. And he kind of has this idea that nobody can really know God. Canst thou find out the Almighty unto perfection? It is as high as heaven. What canst thou do? Deeper than hell. What canst thou know? The measure thereof is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he cut off and shut up or gather together, then who can hinder him? So he's saying, look, Job, you can't even get to know God. You don't know God. And then he says this in verse 11. He says, but let me tell you something, Job. God knows you. And, and what he's saying, he's saying kind of in a sarcastic way, God Job, God knows who you really are. Because one thing you have to notice about Job's friends is that they never give you a specific accusation. They keep accusing him of being wicked and evil, but they never say, like, here's why, Job. Let me give you the specific reason why you're wicked. They never actually say They just keep accusing him, but it's very general. But then in verse 11, he says, For he knoweth vain men. He seeth wickedness also. Will he not then consider... He, here's what Zophar is telling Job. Zophar is saying, I don't know what you're doing wrong, Job, but God knows you're doing something wrong. He knoweth vain men. And remember, he just got done uh, what we just saw in verse 12 that, he's, that he tells him, and you're the vain man I'm talking about, for vain men would be wise, though man be born like a wild ass's colt. So he makes this assumption that, that God really knows Job and what Job's doing and um, that Job doesn't know God and that God sides with him and his three friends versus Job. Then he makes this assumption that Job 
just needs to get right with God. Job just needs to admit it already and just get right with God. Verse 13, if thou preparest thine heart and stretchest out thine hand toward him, if iniquity be in thine hand, put it far away and let not wickedness dwell in thy tabernacle. So Zophar makes all these assumptions, right? He's assuming these things. That, that, that Job really doesn't know God and doesn't walk with God. Now, is that true? We know that's not true, right? Because God looks down at Job and says, this is the greatest Christian on earth. This is the greatest believer on earth. He's upright. He says he escheweth evil. But Zophar is making these assumptions. He, he makes this assumption, God's got your number, Job. God knows what you're doing. You don't really know God. God sides with us, Job. And you really need to get right with God. But please understand this. And again, I don't want to preach the whole thing on assumptions because I've done that recently. But let me just say this. Assumptions always lead to disappointment. Whenever you enter into any relationship with assumptions, just realize this. Assumptions will lead to disappointment all of the time. This is why we have to be very careful to make sure that we are communicating within our relationships. This happens in marriage all the time where Couples are fighting, and they're disappointed with each other. And, you know, sometimes when, when, when I counsel uh, with couples or when my wife counsels uh, with individuals, we, you know, we, you kind of have to dig it out of them and, and, and kind of pull out of them. It's like, why are you so frustrated in this marriage? And, and, and eventually it comes up, you know, this idea, well, I just thought she would, or I just thought he would, but that was never communicated. That was never actually talked about. Nobody ever actually said, yeah, no, no woman ever actually said, yes, honey, I will rub your feet every night after work. And you don't even have to shower. That was never communicated. There's just an assumption that was made. And then it's like they're frustrated. Like, I just, please understand this. Whenever assumptions are made, disappointment will follow. Assumptions lead to disappointment. And imagine if Job, now Job knows better than these guys and he doesn't fall for it, but imagine if Job would have fell for their advice. Imagine if Job, listening to his three friends, said, okay, you guys are right. I'm obviously in some major grievous sin. I need to get right with God. What if Job just, because they're telling him, we're going to see in a minute, just get right with God, everything will be fine. Get right with God, you'll be rich again, you'll be healthy. I mean, they're preaching a prosperity gospel. You'll be healthy and wealthy, and you'll have everything you need. Just get right with God. Now, what if Job would have just got on his knees and said, Lord, I'm confessing my sins to you. I'm not sure which one, because they didn't actually tell me, but they told me one's there, and I'm confessing it to you, and I'm asking you to forgive me, and, 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 and give me back all my riches and wealth. Imagine if Job would have done that, and then just crickets. Nothing happens. Because here's the truth. God would have looked down in heaven and said, Job, you don't have anything to get right. You're, you're, you're not wrong with me. This didn't happen to you because of anything you did wrong. I'm just using you to bring glory to my name. I'm just putting you through a trial and a time of testing. But look, if Job would have bought into these assumptions, he would have been highly disappointed. Because if, what we learned a few weeks ago is that God never gives explanations. And then Job's already thinking, like, what's going on? Imagine if he would have listened to his friends, and he's like, man, I got right with God, and everything's still going wrong. And these assumptions would have led to disappointments. And let me tell you something. In the Christian life, in the Christian life, I've noticed many times Christians get disappointed with, quote, unquote, God, and it's really with the assumptions they made about God. 
You know, somebody told me after six weeks of soul winning, well, I, I'm not going to go soul winning. Nobody ever got saved. You know, in six, I thought, I, I thought uh, somebody would get saved every week. I thought we, I'd get two people saved every week. I went soul winning six weeks and nobody got saved. And it's like, who told you that somebody's going to get saved every week? You didn't get that from the Bible. Notice, notice Jesus didn't say, you know, uh, uh, I'm going to make sure that every time you go, somebody gets saved. You know what Jesus said? Go. You know, you say, what, what is my responsibility? To go. If people get saved, then God gave the increase. And if people didn't get saved, then I was obedient to God's command. Because all he said to me was go. But people, people make all these assumptions. You know, uh, I just thought that this would happen. I thought, I thought that God would do this. I thought that God would do that. But it's like, what, did you get that from the Bible? Assumptions always lead to disappointment. So don't assume anything. Always communicate. Always know. You know, if you're making assumptions about God, dig in the Bible and ask yourself, are my assumptions actually, you know, uh, within uh, the word of God? So we see that Zophar answers Job and then he assumes things about Job. Then I want you to notice, thirdly, Zophar accuses Job. Look at verse 4. He says this, For thou hast said, my doctrine is pure. And you know, what's interesting is that Job says, Zophar says this to Job, uh, like, like it's a bad thing. And, and here's the thing about this. You know, when did Job say these things? And I am clean in thine eyes. But the interesting thing is that, you know, with that phrase, my doctrine is pure, the question I have for Zophar is, what's wrong with that? You don't have to turn there, but Joe, uh, James 3.17 says this, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable. You know, there's nothing wrong with our doctrine being pure. It ought to be pure. And he says, for thou hast said, my doctrine is pure, and I am clean in thine eyes. So he's accusing Job of saying these things, but here's the, the thing. Job didn't say these things. He's just accusing him falsely. In fact, if you go back to Job 9, and look at verse 20 just real quickly, Job 9 and verse 20, the Bible, uh, Job says in the Bible this, this is what Job says. He says, if I justify myself, mine own mouth shall condemn me. If I say I am perfect, it shall also prove me perverse. Now, here's the interesting thing. God said about Job that he was just. God said about Job that he was perfect. But Job said, I'm not going to say those things about myself. You know, the Bible says, let another man praise thee and not thine own lips. You know, so before you go around telling everybody how great of a Christian you are, why don't you let God say that for you? But here's what's interesting, though. Job says, I'm not going to say these things about myself. He says, I'm not going to justify myself. My own mouth shall condemn me. I'm not going to say I'm perfect. It shall also prove me. And then they're like, you're saying all these things. And they're accusing Job falsely. Go to Deuteronomy, if you would. Deuteronomy chapter 19. And let me just say this. Going back to the idea of assumptions. Assumptions always lead to disappointments. But let me just say this. Assumptions often lead to accusations. And because... An assumption by nature lacks evidence, right? Because if there's evidence to something, that's not an assumption, that's a fact. But an assumption is where, you know, people are fighting. Well, she did this and he did that. And, and it's like, well, why, why do you think, you know, because they're not, that's not what they're saying. They're not saying that they did that. You know, well, I just assume that because, you know, and there's, there's always a story about, you know, he didn't look at me right or, you know, she didn't shake my hand or whatever. This, you know, it's like, well, you, you made a lot of assumptions there. 
Why don't you actually just communicate with them and say, hey, is everything okay? Did I offend you? But we make all these assumptions, and then accusations come. And because assumptions are not based off evidence, neither are the accusations. And you know what I've noticed in ministry is that we end up having a lot of false accusations based off a bunch of assumptions. You need to be careful with that. Zophar, Job, you said... It's like, Job, when, when did Job say that? You're making a bunch of assumptions about Job, and then you're accusing him falsely. And look, listen to me. False accusations are a big deal in the Bible. Now, God talks about railings and how that'll get you thrown out of church, and we can talk about that. But, but I, I want to show you here in Deuteronomy 19 how seriously God takes a false accusation. And I wish that our government would apply this uh, law to, to our system. Because I think it's a very wise law that God put in his government system. Deuteronomy 19.18 The judges shall make diligent inquisition. And behold, if the witness be a false witness, so if they look into a a situation and and they figure out like, oh, that guy was just lying or that lady was just lying. If the witness be a false witness and hath testified falsely against his brother, verse 19, then shall ye do unto him as he had thought to have done unto his brother, so shalt thou put the evil away from among you. And those which remain shall hear and fear, and shall henceforth commit no more any such evil among you. Look, that's a great law. That does a lot to protect the testimony of an actual witness versus a lot of just false witnesses. Because you know how people accuse people falsely of all sorts of things? just to get them in trouble with the law, just to get their kids taken away. I mean, people accuse people of, 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 of molesting children, of doing all sorts of terrible things. You know. And here's the thing, when those things actually happen, they should be brought to the authorities. They should be uh, dealt with openly. But sometimes people just accuse me just to get somebody in trouble. Well, you know, God says, you know, here's what should happen. If you accuse someone and what was going to happen was that they were going to go to prison for 10 years as a result of your accusation and we find out that you're lying and you're, that's a false accusation, well, now we're going to throw you in prison for 10 years. If, if, if your accusation would have led to them being killed, now we're going to put you to death. I mean, wouldn't that stop a lot of false accusations if you had this thought, if they find out I'm lying, they're going to give me the punishment I'm trying to give that person? See, God takes false accusations very seriously. So be careful about accusing people. Because look, our tongues just quickly just start accusing people of all sorts of terrible things. And it's like, whoa, whoa, where's the evidence? Well, I just thought that because I just assumed that. And it's like, no, no, no. See, assumptions, they lead to discouragement and, and discontentment. But assumptions, they also often lead to false accusations. And we see that with Zophar. He makes all these assumptions about Job, and then he starts accusing falsely. Let me give you, fourthly, the, the fourth thing here. I said, number one, we saw Zophar answer Job. We saw, number two, Zophar assumes things about Job. Number three, Zophar accuses Job. And then number four, Zophar uh, assures Job, or attempts to assure Job um, in a false confidence. And I want you to see this in verse 15. He says this. He says, for then... And look how confident he speaks. For then shalt thou lift up thy face without spots. Because remember, he just got done telling him, Job, you're not right with God. You need to just get right with God. Now he says, 
And if you get right with God, then shalt thou lift up thy face without spot. Yea, thou shalt be steadfast, and thou shalt not fear, because thou shalt forget thy misery, and remember it as waters that pass away, and thine age. Notice how he words this. And thine age shall be clearer than the noonday. He says, thou shalt shine forth. He says, thou shalt be as the morning. He says, and thou shalt be secure, because there is hope. Yea, thou shalt dig about thee, and thou shalt take thy rest in safety. Also, in verse 19, he says, thou shalt lie down, and none shall make thee afraid. Yea, many shall make suit unto thee. In verse 20, he says, but the eyes of the wicked shall fail, and they shall not escape, and their hope shall be as the giving up of the ghost. And here's what we see with so far. He's very confident in his assurance. He says, Jesus, Job, I'm telling you, just do this, and it's going to come to pass. You know, and look, this is why these guys, these are like the founding fathers of prosperity preaching. I mean, they sound just like a prosperity preacher on TV. Send a thousand dollars and God's going to make you rich. I eradicate coronavirus with my voice, you know, and just all this confidence speaking, you know, this is going to happen and that's going to happen and God's going to bless you and you're going to have a mansion kind of like my mansion and just give me your money, you know, and this confident, overconfident speaking. But you know what? We need to be very careful about just assuring people in things and having confidence in things that we really don't know about. Because here's the thing, Zophar has no idea what he's talking about. Zophar thinks that Job is, is a sinner and he needs to get right with God and God's going to make him rich. And Zophar is wrong. And he gives all these false assurances. So, you know, the question sometimes is asked. Go, go, go to Mark, if you would, Mark chapter 1. We're almost done. We'll look at a couple of references. We'll finish up. Mark chapter 1. Matthew, Mark. Mark chapter 1, verse 22. Because, you know, the, the, the opposite extreme is... You have these preachers who are just speaking with all this authority. Just send in this money and we're going to, you know, make you rich. Or send in this money and I'm going to sneeze in this handkerchief and send it to you and it's going to heal you. You know, but then you have these preachers who are just not authoritative at all. They're just like, well, you know, God would probably like it if you maybe shared the gospel with your family. Maybe. You know, it's just kind of this like, you know, can we get some authority here? You know, so you say, well, what, what's the balance to preach with authority, but to not give people false assurance? And, um, and I want to show this to you in Mark chapter 1, look at verse 22. The Bible says this, and they were astonished at his doctrine. This is after Jesus just got done preaching a sermon. They were astonished at his doctrine. And by the way, let me just say this. The, the characteristic of good Bible preaching is not that people walk away and say, oh, that was a great delivery. And I think we should do our best to have good deliveries, and I think we should be dynamic, and I think we should fluctuate our voice, and I think we should use our hands and walk around. I think we should do everything in our power to keep people entertained uh, and engaged and, 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 and to keep them from falling asleep. I agree with all of that. I'm not speaking against that. But you know what? After a sermon, people ought to be astonished with the doctrine. With the, like, wow! They shouldn't say, wow, what a preacher! They should say, wow! What, what a Bible truth. What, what a Savior. 
What a word of God. Wow, I never saw that in the Bible. Look, that's what our aim should be as preachers. Not to impress people with our speaking abilities, although I think we should work on our speaking abilities. I'm not saying we shouldn't. But when, when Jesus, and look, I'm sure Jesus was a great preacher, but after his preaching, they were astonished at his doctrine. And then they said this, For he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. See, the scribes did not teach with authority. Jesus taught with authority. You say, Pastor, you know, how, how do we teach with authority? Go, go to James real quickly, if you would. James, towards the end of the New Testament, if you start at the book of Revelation, head backwards, you have Jude, 3rd, 2nd, 1st John, 2nd, 1st Peter, James. You say, you know, because, look, I try to preach with authority. I, I think I preach with authority. You know, uh, you, you say, wh- wh- where do you get that? Where did that confidence come from? Look, please understand this. And look, we do a lot of counseling where we sit down with people and say, tell them, like, here's what you need to do. You know, they tell us their problems. And we say, do this, do this, do that. You say, where do you find the confidence to do that? Here's where we find the confidence. One place, the Word of God. Amen. See, if I got up here and just gave you all my opinions and my thoughts, I'd be like, ah, I hope that works out. You know, right? Amen. I mean, if somebody asks me a question, I'm like, ah, you know, well, I, you know, do this. And, I was, and I'd be like, ah, we'll see let me know if it works out. But you know, whenever I preach the Word of God, though, I don't have to question, you know, if that's going to work out. That's the Word of God. That's what the Bible says. See, see, there's a lot, there's confidence in just saying, when I stand up and say, hey, here's what God says uh, for your marriage. Do these things. You'll have a good marriage. I can say that with confidence. Why? Because it's the Word of God. And if somebody says, well, I tried it and it didn't work, it's like, no, you didn't work because God's Word works every time. You know, I see, I, I we can stand up and tell people, here's how you gotta raise your children, here's what you gotta do with your finances, here's what you ought to do with your time, here's how you gotta have a marriage, here's how you ought to have your home structured. We can tell people with confidence what to do when we're telling them what the Bible says. But when we're giving our thoughts and our opinions and all sorts of other things that have nothing to do with the Bible, then it's kind of like, hey, let me give you a big disclaimer. You know, this is my opinion. And, and look, we, well, I've tried to do that in my preaching. Whenever I give my opinion, I say, here's my opinion. Here's what I think. I don't know what the Bible says about this, but let me tell you my thoughts. You know, but, but here's the thing. I try not to do that. Because the preaching, the way, the way we get authority, the confidence is in the Word of God. Look, and in your life, put confidence in the things you know the Bible actually says. And everything else, everything else, just be very careful. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, you, you, go, you went to James 4, go ahead and stay there, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go there in a second. But one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible is 1 Kings 20, 11. It's interesting because it's actually Ahab who's speaking, which is not generally a good guy. But, you know, what he says is, is I think, is a really uh, good thing. And, 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 you know, the Bible talks about even wicked people saying uh, good things. But in 1 Kings 20, 11, Ahab is getting ready to go into battle. And, and this is a battle that God's going to help him with, by the way. So I do think that he's in the, on the right side in this story. And, and the, the other guy is just, you know, giving all these accusations, saying, just go home. It's not going to work out well. I'm going to beat you so bad, you know. And he's just real boastful and real arrogant. And in 1 Kings 20.11, this is what Ahab says, his response. He says, and the king of Israel answered and said, tell him. Let not him that girdeth on his harness boast himself as he that putteth it off. I love that phrase because he says, look, before you start, you know, having a victory dance, he says, don't boast like 
him, you know, don't, don't let him that's girding on his harness. Because he's, he's saying, look, you're, you're just putting on your harness because we're going to go into battle. He says, don't boast like the person that's taken off their harness who came out of battle. He says, why don't you at least wait till you've won the battle before you start boasting and bragging? And, you know, sometimes in our lives, we need to be real careful. We need to be very careful about all the assurances. It's real easy. Look, it's real easy when you've got no children or one kid or two kids and they're little and you're looking at all those, look at all those wicked teenagers. They are so wicked. My eight-month-old would never do that. It's like, yeah, well, they didn't do it when they were eight months old either. You know, be careful about boasting yourself when you're just girding on your harness. You know, you say, well, Pastor, you, you know, you just have a 13-year-old now. How do you stand up and preach uh, with authority? Because I'm preaching God's word. I can say, hey, I haven't raised teenagers. You know, my kids are not grown yet. We're still trying to, we're still practicing and trying to raise them. But I can tell you with authority, here's what the Bible says you got to do with your kids. But, you know, just be careful about just being real, you know, confident about this and that and look at this. And look, and look just do what the Bible says. Win the battle. Have the marriage. You know, before you start giving everybody marriage advice, why don't you try being married for more than, you know, a year? For, you know, ladies want to have their a homeschool seminar. It's like, how long have you been homeschooling? I just started. Then why are you teaching an online homeschool seminar? Do it for a while. You know, let not him that girdeth on his harness boast himself as he that putteth it off. Be careful about just speaking overly confident, having all this assurance. Oh, we're going to do this. I'm going to do that. We're going to go. People talk about, we're going to go in the ministry. Bless God, we're going to be running 500 in the first three weeks. It's like, come on. You don't know that. You know, and if it happens, praise the Lord. But why don't you actually just get in the fight? Let not him that girdeth on his harness boast himself as he that putteth it off. Are there in James chapter 4? Notice what James says. In verse 13, he says, go to now. Ye that say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Right? That's what, we're going to go over there, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, what you're going to see. And James just kind of cautions them and says, whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. You know what Zophar should have said? Zophar should have said, Job, I don't know. I don't want to accuse you. It doesn't look to me like you've got any major sin in your life. I'm not sure. But as a friend, I'll just tell you this. If there is some major sin in your life, you know, get it right with Lord, with God. And if the Lord wills, he might restore you. You understand how that's different than, Job, you're a donkey. You're an idiot. You're so vain. Just get right with God. I'm the wise one. Do you see the difference? Look, don't be a Zophar. He's accusing Job of being a blowhard, and Zophar is the blowhard. And look, in our Christian life, we ought to have confidence in the Word of God. We ought to walk with confidence. But we ought to have some humility that says, you know, if the Lord will, we'll go and do this. We'll plan to do that. But I don't know anything outside of the Word of God. My confidence comes in the Word of God and everything else that we plan and try to do and attempt to do for God, it's if the Lord wills. 
Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the Bible. Lord, I pray you to help us to just be Christians that are not arrogant, that are not just not people who just think it's our job to go around correcting everybody and telling everybody why they're wrong and why we're right. Lord, help us to just walk humbly with our Lord. Help us to just walk with you and follow you. And, and Lord, when it's time to preach and speak and give counsel, help us to do it with authority because we're preaching your word. And when it comes to our personal lives and what we think will happen tomorrow or the next day or what we'd like to happen, help us to realize that our life is but a vapor. It appears for a little time and vanishes away. If the Lord will, we'll go and do all those things. Lord, help us to have the right attitude. Help us to have a humble attitude. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen.